a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us. I am happy to welcome my friend Eric Peters from EPAutos.com as well. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm good. And I'm thinking about doing a riff on the old $6 million man intro. Joe Sixpack, American. We can make him slower than he was before. <laughs> Easier to control. More malleable. We have the technology. <laughs> yeah, you, you actually had a marvelous article here recently about, uh, what was it, the prionic driver? The prionic driver, and the reference is a kind of a snarky ode to what some people believe uh, may be in the vaccines that are uh, that seems to be causing people to just sort of be stumbling around in a in, in a fog, both uh, outside of their cars and inside of their cars. I'm getting reports all over the country from people who are telling me they're seeing the same thing I'm seeing, which is people driving unbelievably slowly. We're not talking about a couple of miles an hour under whatever the speed limit is. We're talking about like 15, 20 miles an hour under the speed limit, accompanied by random braking and then kind of just wandering off into the other lane as, as if they're in a fog. And that's why I call it prionic driving. Do you think there's some truth to, uh, to the brain fog that uh, people are experiencing as a result of the vaccine? Well, all I can tell you is that anecdotally I'm seeing it. And uh, there's also the case, I'd love to use that word whenever I can, of the bank teller at my bank, who I've known for many years, who inadvertently gave me an extra $1,000 about a month ago after she got her vaccine. Nice. And apologized for it <laughs> when I came back to return the money, uh, saying that, and I quote, she's felt foggy ever since she's had the vaccine. Ooh. Interesting. Now, look, you and I, we're not here today to try to, you know, spread fear and, and distrust, but... You would think that people would, would ask a few more questions. And, and if, if nothing else, just because there have been so many different attempts, starting with, come on, it'll be fun to, mm-hmm. I'll give you ice cream, I'll give you free beer, yep. to, you need to do this or else. I mean, the, well, sure. the, the push is so hard. And people should be afraid, particularly parents, of what might happen to their kids, because we know for a fact that a number of kids who were perfectly healthy before they got this vaccine died of myocarditis, heart inflammation, and things of that nature. Those are facts. Now, granted, it's not a huge number of them, but the fact remains that almost no kids have died from the Rona, and the the chance of them dying from that vaccine is probably comparable to, if not greater than, the risk of the Rona. And minimally, people should pause and say, wait a minute, I don't think this is potentially a good idea to shoot my kid up with this stuff until we know more about it and what its long-term effects might be. Yeah, and, and I, I'm grateful for people like you uh, who have taught me when someone is pressuring you to do something, particularly if it's someone in authority, you've got to step back and say, okay, wait a minute, why? Sure. You know, remember a time when you understood what the heart, when people generally understood what that hard sell was when they went to go car shopping? Oh, yeah. You know, you, you're, you're out there looking at the vehicle, and the guy just, just is really relentless and pressuring you, come on, can you buy today? What will it take to get you in this car right now? Right. And most people realize, you know, this, this, this is not cool. This guy is trying to sell me a bill of goods. No thanks. I'm going to go somewhere else. 
and, and the same logic applies to this vaccine. The fact that they're pushing it, I mean, literally offering to give people stuff if they'll, if they'll accept this thing, ought to raise questions in people's minds about why they are doing it, particularly given the related facts that for most people, this vaccine is at, at best marginally necessary. And in the case of kids, completely not necessary. There is no medical rational reason for giving a healthy kid this vaccine that I've, that I've come across. Well, I did hear on the news this morning they were touting that, uh, well, we have 150 million people fully vaccinated now in the U.S. And, <laughs> and, of course, the fact that that's making politicians happy, again, raises a big red flag for me. Like, mm, why are politicians so happy that we have 150 well, million Americans course, submitting? <clears throat> a lot of these politicians are getting handsome campaign contributions from these big pharmaceutical companies, which, of course, are celebrating the fact that 150 million people have been jabbed because what they want to do minimally is establish a precedent for this sort of thing being a recurrent annual thing where everybody, literally everybody in the country, sticks out their arm to receive the holy needle of whatever it is that these pharmaceutical cartels want to inject them with, and they stand to reap billions of dollars minimally, leaving aside all of the other conspiracy theories that are associated with what's going on. There's the conspiracy fact that these companies have a massive financial incentive in getting mass vaccinations not only happening this year but ongoing. And the fact that the general press doesn't talk about that is outrageous. No, I, I agree. I, I wanted to, to shift over to something that you had brought up. And this I, I thought this was kind of cool because I try to look for the silver lining in things. Yeah. And you have found a solid upside to the lockdowns. Talk to me about yep. that. Yep, it's been about a year now since I was excommunicated. That's my rooster, Ulysses, by the way. I'm sorry for the interruption. No worries. Uh, uh, since I was excommunicated from the little coffee shop that uh, I used to go to almost every day with my laptop um, to work for a few hours. I just liked the vibe. I liked the ambiance. Uh, and then I got kicked out because I refused to play sickness kabuki by wearing the, the holy face effacer. So it's been about a year since then. And I took some inventory and realized, you know, when I went there, I would get at least a cup of coffee, which was $3 for the cup of coffee, and often a cookie, which was another $3. So that's about 6 bucks, not counting the tip. And I always tip the people generously because they were nice people, and I know they don't make a lot of money. Well, anyway, I added it all up, and I realized I've saved about 1400 bucks over the last year in coffee and cookie and tip money. And uh, that's been a nice little you know, boost to my, to my financial well-being. So that is a real upside, and I think a lot of other people have experienced the same. The things we just sort of did uh, before all of this madness descended without really thinking about it, like going to Starbucks and dropping five bucks on a cup of coffee and eating out uh, at restaurants and paying a lot of money for that. And, you know, it adds up incrementally. It doesn't seem like a whole lot, but over the course of time, uh, people would spend a great deal on that. And now you kind of look at it and realize, wow, I didn't need to spend all that money, and suddenly I'm a little bit more solvent than I was a year ago. I guarantee that uh, all of the lockdown stuff and, and the accompanying um, uneasiness, the toilet paper shortages and so forth, mm-hmm. have definitely focused me more on, am I spending my money with, with wisdom and with an eye towards you know, being, uh, being more self-sufficient, or am I spending it in a way that, that is going to make me more dependent? Well, sure, and there is that juxtaposition of wants versus needs. Sure, it's nice to want a cup of coffee, uh, you know, out at a cafe somewhere or want uh, a sub at a sandwich shop somewhere, but we really don't necessarily need these things, and we have gotten a lot of us habituated to doing it often as opposed to an occasional treat. 
And this is focuses on more on what we need. You and I were talking a little bit off air about that. And I'm in the process of, uh, of putting together a nice garden, and I'm thinking seriously about investing some of the money that I've saved into a permanent year-round greenhouse so that I can grow food year-round, which I think will be a whole lot more important to have than a $3 cup of coffee at a face diapering coffee shop. No, that's a good point. And something you've pointed out before, too, and I, I'm sorry if this comes off as, as negative, but... If we've also, if we've learned, you know, you know how to spend a little more wisely, I think we've also seen a little more clearly who is more likely to uh, to um, knuckle under. Who would be who would be likely to sure. rat you out for not wearing your face mask and stuff? We've seen the true nature of people who have that controlling desire. Yeah, somebody put it very aptly. I wish I thought of it first. When the masks came on, the masks came off. Ooh, you wow. Know? And it's very, isn't, isn't that very uh, wise and profound? That's definitely insightful. And it's, I know to some mm-hmm. people that's going to sound like, well, you guys are just being paranoid. But um, I, I look at the stakes and I look at the ways that people are being backed into a corner. You can't work here. You can't fly here. You can't, right. you know, whatever. It seems to me that the, the desire to control and the ability to control are definitely ratcheting up. Well, sure. We've, most people are familiar with the expression, the good German, and the references to people during World War II in Germany um, who weren't necessarily bad people. You know, they weren't the ones who were out in front uh, participating in all of the horrors of the regime. But nonetheless, they played along with it. You know, they went ahead and put on the armband. They wore the pin. uh, They raised their arm because they didn't want any trouble. They just wanted to be good Germans. They just wanted to go to work. They just wanted to be able to shop. Well, good Americans now, unfortunately, a lot of them are very much like the good Germans of of once upon a time. And the lesson is instructive, and I think it's really critical that people learn from that. You know, we're coming up on our break here in about 30 seconds, but Eric, on the other side of the break, I'd love to talk with you about uh, what it means to be a good American. And I mean in the the true sense of to to really be a good person. I won't even just qualify it to just Americans. Does this sound like a topic worth tackling? That sounds like a great topic. Let's do that. Okay. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I will have a link to his website as well as some of the different articles that we're discussing today. But I encourage you, go check it out. You should do it on a regular basis. Maybe even consider commenting and uh, being part of the conversation on many of these articles. He has a really well-informed, you know, readership and... You might learn a thing or two. I know I do. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And Eric, I'd like to follow up on, uh, you'd mentioned the good German, right? The, yeah. the German citizen who's just trying to be a good German, you know, through, uh, through yep. the rise and fall of the Third Reich. And yep. let's talk about uh, what it means to be a good person today. And I mean in the sense of really being a good person as opposed to simply being an obedient person. Absolutely. I had occasion to get into this a little bit recently because my niece turned 16, and I did a little um, video monologue for her on her birthday. And the thing that I I, I recommended that she do is to use her brain and to not be guided by groupthink and to question things and to look into things for herself 
rather than just accept the supposed received wisdom of whatever comes through the television or the radio and go along to get along and do things just because other people are doing them. That ultimately, I think, is one of the key reasons for the pathology that we're suffering from and the reason why America today is coming to look a lot like Germany once looked, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. No, I I see the parallels and... You know, it's it's not because I'm I'm you know trying to run around in a constant state of fear and, and uncertainty, but you know, it, you don't have to be. We don't have to be using the exact same language, the same flags and armbands and stuff to recognize we're moving in a very predictable direction. You know, the Chinese Cultural Revolution Absolutely. is another good example. Absolutely, and you know, it's not fear. I'm not afraid. I'm concerned. There's a difference. People who are fearful uh, are people who cringe and hide from the truth who don't want to deal with uncomfortable realities. You and I are dealing with uncomfortable realities. That doesn't make us afraid. It makes us awake. Absolutely. So um, talk to me for a little bit about how do you keep your moral compass calibrated so that you don't give in out of either necessity or even just the desire to avoid conflict? How how does one be a good person? Is it possible to do this without running afoul of, of those who are determined to simply be obedient? Well, sure. You just have to be willing sometimes to make sacrifices, as, for example, in the case of my giving up going to that coffee shop. I could have said to myself, well, okay, I'm going to put on the stupid mask, and then I can just sit here per usual and have a cup of coffee. But I decided not to do that. I decided to part ways with not only the coffee shop, but with the people who worked there that I had come to think were, uh, if, if not friends, good acquaintances, people that I talk to frequently. Um, because it was not worth it to me to surrender uh, and to participate. That's an important thing, to participate in the propagation of what I consider to be a very vicious, evil lie. Um, you know, people are often um, cajoled into going along with what's going on right now um, out of supposedly caring oh, yeah. for other people. And <laughs> it's exactly the opposite. If you care about other people, then you care about not lying to them, about not propagating lies, about not enabling tyranny that's based on lies. And it's important to take a stand on things like that, even if you're a minority of one, even in your own home, even uh, with regard to the people that you're closest to, your spouses, your family, all of that. I'm going to have to paraphrase this because I don't have the quote right in front of me, but I remember Alexander Solzhenitsyn making a statement Mm -hmm. one time, I am speaking to you as a friend. And, and the, what he yes. was saying is, I'm speaking to you as a friend who is willing to tell you hard truths rather than sure. just, just, you know, smile and nod, knowing full well that you are heading towards, you know, um, real danger. Isn't that what defines a friendship? You know, you have these sort of superficial, vapid conversations with people who really aren't your friends. It's not that you think they're bad people or they think you're a bad person. It's just you don't really know them. You know, you, you, you engage in banter with the clerk in the process of checking out at the supermarket. You don't talk about anything substantive or important because you're not that close to that person. Well, a friendship is supposed to be something that is closer. You're supposed to be more intimate with a friend, uh, let alone a spouse or a significant other or your children. And you're supposed to be real with them and express what's on your mind and have substantive conversations with them. And if you can't have that, then the relationship is, is a superficial and vapid one. Here, here. I want to shift gears. We've got just a couple minutes left here, Eric, but mm-hmm. I, you had an article about uh, multiply liable. and <laughs> Multiply liable. Multiply yeah. liable. And I'm, I'm telling you that uh, I send that check off to the insurance company, you know, every month, like it or not, because it's the law. 
But right. uh, something you pointed out here that I'd never seen it expressed in these terms is it seems that more and more this process is all about simply paying as opposed to actually sure. protecting you from, from risk. Yeah. The argument that people who drive cars ought to carry liability insurance uh, rests on the premise that you might cause harm to others. And that's, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with forcing people to pay for harms that they haven't caused, but I understand that argument. What I don't understand is forcing people to buy multiple liability policies. In other words, if you have more than one vehicle, as I do, I have to buy a liability policy for every vehicle I have, notwithstanding that I can only be liable once, only in the vehicle that I'm actually driving at any given time. The rest of them can't harm anybody because they're parked. There's nobody driving them. So how come I have to buy all these multiple liability policies? Why can't I buy just a single liability policy on me, the driver, so that in the event that I cause harm to somebody, okay, fine, the, the policy pays. But instead, I'm compelled to pay multiple times, just as anybody else who has multiple vehicles is compelled to pay multiple times. And that tells you it's a racket. There's just no reason for it other than lining the pockets of the insurance mafia. Yeah, and you, you, I believe, are the person who introduced the term insurance mafia to me. Yeah. And I've never looked at it the same. I've had some great uh, you know, insurance agents who've helped me along, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm still being given an offer I can't refuse. Well, that's just it. Insurance as such is not evil, just like electric cars as such. They're not evil either. But it becomes a mafia when they literally can make you an offer you can't refuse. You're compelled to buy their product. And that's exactly what Luca Brasi, remember him, the, the oh, enforcer yeah. of Don Corleone and The Godfather? Mm-hmm. He, you know, he comes into the store and says, oh, be a shame if somebody broke your windows. You know, and, and you have to pay the guy because if you don't pay him, uh, you know, he's going to blow your brains out or beat you up or whatever. And that, that's really what it comes down to with insurance. You're not in a position to voluntarily say, you know, uh, I'm concerned about risk. I, I think it would be sound and, and, and responsible of me to go out and buy insurance coverage. They're, you're told you're going to buy it, and you're told what the coverage is going to be, and that's why it's a mafia and not just insurance. Well, and, and something that I, I would gather very few people actually contemplate is, what kind of lobbyists does the insurance industry have? Because this is public policy that very clearly favors them, but uh, you know, I, I wonder how many people actually stop to ask. You know, is, is this something that was really enacted organically, or is this the result of intense lobbying at the behest of an industry that is uh, benefiting from it? Of course, and it's the same kind of lobbying that's going on right now with regard to these vaccines, because they see dollar signs. Just like the insurance mafia, if they can make it mandatory that people have to get a vaccine, well, that means they get mandatory profits, uh, enormous profits. It's not coincidental that health car insurance is one of the most profitable businesses in the entire country because we're a captive audience. We can't say no. And the, the ability to say no is a market corrective to price gouging. You know, if something's too expensive and you say to the guy, well, I can't afford that. It's just too expensive. Uh, in a free market, the, the seller thereof is going to have to adjust their prices to a level that the market will willingly accept. But when you take away that impediment from the point of view of the insurance mafia, they can charge whatever they like. They can charge people who've never had a, file, a claim filed against them, uh, who've never cost the insurance company anything, extravagant, exorbitant sums of money. I think the average cost of an insurance policy in this country is 1000 bucks a year. Think about how much that works out to, say, over the course of 30 years. It's a lot of money. Well, as a, as a dad with uh, numerous uh, drivers under the age of 25, mm-hmm. I feel the pain. The insurance companies know. Yeah, they know me do. well. <laughs> 
They they love to see me. Uh, oh, yeah. we are getting a new yacht. His son just got his license. Woo! <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and it's it's really it's a sad thing on a multiple levels, and particularly with regard to young kids, because now insurance is so exorbitant that for the most part, unless they are getting some help from their parents, they can't afford the coverage, and so they can't afford to drive. And you know that that encourages them to not participate in what we grew up with—the American dream of mobility, of being 15 or 16 years old and champing at the bit. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Get your driver's license and get that first car, no matter how much of a POS it was. It was your car, and now you were free to go, you know, go do what you wanted to do without your parents hovering over you all the time. And it was that first big step toward being an adult. And uh, what's happening now is a concerted effort to keep kids perpetually children and it's this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show all right welcome back to the show once again thanks for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers and thank you for allowing us to uh, to be a part of your day, or at least a part of your quest for clarity and desire to know how the world is working, what's really going on. I know there's a lot of crazy stuff going on out there. One of the hardest things to persuade people is that you really have to be careful anytime you ask government to get involved to solve a problem. And it's look, it's not that there aren't problems. I think we can all agree, yes, there are plenty of problems out there, plenty of things that need to be solved, but somehow... The default setting for a great deal of humanity has been, well, there ought to be a law, or we ought to, we ought to ask somebody in power to do something about that. And, and here's the downside. When someone in power decides they're going to step up and do something about it, almost always they're going to find a way to do it in a way that meets some goal, but also creates unintended consequences. And for people in power... When you're doing what you're doing with other people's money, when you're when you're able to avoid accountability, uh, let's just, let's just say it's kind of a disaster in terms of uh, of getting a good result. Got an example of this actually. This is an article from John Miltimore, um, and I'm not trying to shake your faith in the state. Okay, maybe I am a little bit, but California's 100 million dollar marijuana bailout tells you all you need to know about its government. John Miltimore has written an article about how California's legislature legislature rather recently approved a $100 million plan to boost the Golden State's struggling legal marijuana industry. Now, it's legal, and it has been for a long time. California was, I think, one of the first states to lead out, first with medicinal cannabis, then they went to recreational. But, uh, yeah, even by taking that uh, that uh, criminal burden off, they created an oppressive tax and regulatory burden that unfortunately appears to be really making uh, making it hard for those who want to do it the legal way. Those, that's air quotes. You know, it's it. They have a lot of incentive to go for black market marijuana. Why? Because the state's involved in the state. Hey, I just we want we just want our cut, man. We see you being happy. We want we want a little bit of your happiness. That's all we're asking. You know, or else. I should should add that's that's part of the deal. Miltimore says there are many great movies on the drug trade, but he says my personal favorite is Blow. The film stars Johnny Depp as George Young, a.k.a. Boston George, a real life drug smuggler sentenced to 70 years in prison back in 1994. Now, like most drug movies, Blow depicts the highs of the drug trade, the parties, mansions, rooms full of cash. 
as well as the lows of addiction, paranoia, loss of control. One thing that made Blow so good is it showed the incredible demand for drugs. Whether they're dealing pot or cocaine, George and his partners can't keep up with the huge demand no matter how much supply they get. George tells his business partner, I think it's fair to say you underestimated the market. That's 36 hours after moving a huge amount of product. He said it would take a year to sell. Now, John Miltimore says, I bring up blow in light of news that California's legislature approved a $100 million plan to boost California's struggling legal marijuana industry. As the Los Angeles Times reports, the industry is in serious trouble. The growth of licensed cannabis shops has been dismal and far below state projections. Just 1,086 retail and delivery firms have been permitted to date. That's about 82% lower than the 6,000 cannabis shops the government anticipated. Now, John Miltimore asks, how is this possible? And then he answers, well, shortly after California legalized pot in 2016, lawmakers began burdening the industry with so many regulations, particularly myriad compliance orders associated with the California Environmental Quality Act, that businesses are drowning under paperwork, fees, and delays. The Times reports, many cannabis growers, retailers, and manufacturers have struggled to make the transition from a provisional temporary license to a permanent one renewed on an annual basis a process that requires a costly, complicated, time-consuming review of the negative environmental effects involved in a business and plan for reducing those harms. With more than 80% of firms in the marijuana industry not fully licensed, he says one might think California lawmakers would be examining the regulatory framework that's strangling the industry, but that's not what's happening. Instead, Governor Gavin Newsom is trying to give marijuana businesses a six-month extension on the January 1st deadline to transition from provisional licenses to full-time licensed shops. By the way, that extension is being vigorously opposed by environmental groups. Imagine that. Additionally, the state's shelling out $100 million to help business navigate its regulatory labyrinth. Assemblyman Phil Ting from San Francisco, the chairman of the Assembly Budget Committee, told the Times the funds, including $22 million earmarked for L.A., would help cities hire experts and staff to assist businesses in completing the environmental studies and transitioning the licenses to help legitimate businesses succeed. In other words, if we can just create a little more bureaucracy to help them through the existing bureaucracy, maybe we can get this sorted out, out, right? But cannabis industry trade leaders say that's not the kind of relief they need. Jared Kylo, president of the United Cannabis Business Association, told the Times it's a significant amount of money, but I don't know that it actually answers the problem of provisional licenses, making it through CEQA analysis in a timely manner to get an annual license. The real problem is that that analysis, the CEQA analysis, is a very arduous process. He says, I think it would just be good to have more reform of the licensing system instead of just putting money to it. Now, though marijuana was illegal almost everywhere in the world just a few short years ago, the global market is projected to hit $90 billion by 2026. And the reason for this is obvious. There's a huge demand for cannabis, which can be used recreationally, medically, and generally, because it does supply various other needs. That's why Californians were so excited about marijuana legalization. Just a few years ago, officials were projecting it to be a $5 billion boon to the economy. Yes, billion with a B. The politicians were licking their chops at the prospect of a 
$1.8 billion in new tax revenue for state and local governments as the legal cannabis market slowly replaced the illicit market. And he has a chart here that shows what was supposed to happen in California's legal marijuana industry, but what didn't. In fact, a recent USC study found illegal purchases still outnumber legal purchases, and it's all because of the Golden State's oppressive tax and regulatory structure. Researchers said the finding that a larger-than-expected number of unlicensed facilities are in areas that allow retail suggests that unlicensed retailers are competing with licensed retailers, potentially undercutting the sales of the licensed retailers and reducing the taxes paid to the state. Now, that's a shame. Now, this sadly is the modus operandi of the Golden State, where an oppressive tax and regulatory climate has created widespread economic dysfunction. Despite its wealth, with a GDP just under $3 trillion, California has the fifth largest economy in the world. The state has the third highest homeless rate of the 50 states, persistently high housing prices, and it leads the nation in poverty rate relatively consistently, not to mention the uh, pooping and shoplifting ep- epidemics. As one Twitter observer, uh, or one Twitter influencer observed, rather, the only thing you really need to know about how California is governed is that lawmakers had to create a $100 million bailout for marijuana a product in such high demand that the government couldn't stop it from being traded for decades despite waging a war on drugs. He says California's effort to save its floundering cannabis industry brings to mind the adage from Ronald Reagan, himself a major proponent of the war on drugs, on the misguided, sometimes comical efforts to regulate the economy. Government's view of the economy could be summed up in a few short phrases. Reagan once quipped, if it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. And if it stops moving, subsidize it. And as ridiculous as this sounds, that's exactly what California has done. So what could California learn from Boston George? Well, according to a 1993 Boston Globe article, Boston George Young, who died in May, was uh, making nearly $2 million a month. That's uh, inflation-adjusted dollars selling pot before his 1974 arrest in Chicago, where he was busted smuggling 600 pounds of pot. Young himself estimates he made about $500 million, 2020 dollars selling drugs in his lifetime. Now, say what you will about Young, a man who dealt with Pablo Escobar and traded in controlled substances, but at least he knew how to make a profit. And that's something you can't say about California lawmakers. Now, I share this story, this article from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education, not to try to make the case that, hey, man, pot's good, okay? Um, I'm not trying to convince you of that at all. I'm trying to illustrate that when the state gets involved, especially when it starts to insert itself into various uh, parts of the economy or various industries, whether it's out of real concern or just trying to regulate things to keep it safe and happy for everybody, it just creates more bureaucracy. And in this case, you're seeing more bureaucracy being uh, addressed, the problem of more bureaucracy being addressed by even more bureaucracy. Well, we'll just have to throw more tax dollars at it. We'll just have to, uh, to take care of this in such a way that, uh, you know, we, we get more bureaucrats working on this problem. I, I guess I think John Miltimore's right here. The politicians can't see that the problem is them and their bureaucratic counterparts. So, better not to get the state involved in the first place. In fact, when we come back, got an excellent article from Mike Meharry from the Tenth Amendment Center illustrating why that is. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention our sponsors for today. They include HSLAmmo.com, also Pure-Light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. By the way, I'm headed to Monticello this weekend, and I am so excited. It's, a, it's an incredible little school, and it, it does remarkable things that I don't think very many people are doing anywhere else. In fact, I'm not aware of anything quite like it, uh, the, at least that comes to mind. But it's in such a beautiful, peaceful corner of the Beehive State. I just uh, I love to get there. It's, it's going to be hot. But uh, but I'm I'm willing to deal with that. I've brought some some shade and some sunscreen, and I'm just looking forward to uh, to getting to reacquaint myself with uh, Monticello College again. Links to all of these sponsors found in the show notes at thebrianheitshow.com. You know, when it comes to understanding the nature of government, uh, there are very few resources as accurate as the Tenth Amendment Center. Really, I I love how these guys approach their message of keeping government limited in order to do what it's supposed to do. Now, some people say, well, that's a very anti-government attitude, but um, it's, it's actually a very realistic attitude that recognizes there are some things which government can be a beneficial influence in our life when it's protecting our God-given rights. When it's not, though, when it strays beyond its primary mission, it becomes a source of endless mischief and sorrow. So I wanted to share with you this great essay from Mike Meharry about the first question we should always ask. He says, here's the first question you should ask about any proposal made by any person in the federal government. Is this authorized by the Constitution? Not, do I like this policy? Not, do I like the guy proposing the policy? Not even, is this policy a win for liberty? The first question should always be, is this constitutional? And if it's not, if it's not based on the original meaning of the Constitution as ratified, it shouldn't be done, period. Now, Mike Meharry says we seem to be drifting further and further away from the standard. The left abandoned it years ago, decades ago, if it ever embraced it at all. But he says, I've also seen countless Republicans and conservatives turn their backs on constitutional fidelity as well because the limits on federal power stand in the way of enacting policies they like or simply because they want to defend their guy in the White House. So he says, I'm going to put this as bluntly as I can. These people are wrecking the constitutional system just as surely as the libtards they hate. Now, in an 1809 letter to the Washington Tammany Society, Thomas Jefferson wrote, Aware of the tendency of power to degenerate into abuse, the worthies of our country have secured its independence by the establishment of a constitution, and form of government for our nation, calculated to prevent as well as to correct abuse. End quote. Mike Meharry says when we ease the boundaries set around federal power by the Constitution, we open the door for the government to degenerate into abuse. Instead of a government operating within strict limits, we end up with politicians exercising arbitrary power. Journalist Cassandra Fairbanks made a uh, poignant statement during an interview with Tom Woods, She said, when politicians come and go, but once your freedoms are gone, they are gone forever. Now, Mike Meharry says John Adams expressed a similar sentiment in a 1775 letter to his wife, Abigail. In previous correspondence, she described the difficulties endured by the people of Boston and other coastal cities under the heavy hand of the British. Adams said there was one consolation, quote, cities may be rebuilt and a people reduced to poverty may acquire fresh property. 
but a constitution of government once changed from freedom can never be restored. Liberty once lost is lost forever. End quote. Now, the same is true for limits on federal power, says Mike Meharry. When you tear them down, you can never build them back. And the limits on federal power serve as the bulwark to protect our freedom and liberties. It's like a hole in a dam. Once the water starts squirting through the hole, you'll never plug it. You've compromised the integrity of the dam. The hole eventually grows until the entire dam collapses. And this is true whether a politician erases boundaries to do things you hate or things you approve of. Either way, once they erase the boundaries, they're gone forever. You can't draw them back when somebody you don't like takes the reins of power and tramples on your liberties. As Fairbanks said, politicians come and go. At some point, one will come who will abuse any power available to him. You can only prevent this by ensuring that the power is never available to them to begin with. As the British were beginning to chip away at the rights of the colonists prior to the American Revolution, Adams wrote, Nip the shoots of arbitrary power in the bud is the only maxim which can ever preserve the liberties of any people. He went on to assert, When the people give way, their deceivers, betrayers, and destroyers press upon them so fast that there is no resisting afterwards. As Lord Acton asserted, Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This was precisely why the founding generation insisted on placing limits on government authority with a written constitution. They experienced firsthand the erosion of their liberties as British parliamentary power expanded into a sphere of authority that rightly belonged to their own colonial assemblies. In fact, John Adams likened it to cancer. Quote, the nature of the encroachment upon the American Constitution is such as to grow every day more and more encroaching. Like a cancer, it eats faster and faster every hour. Now, Mike Meharry says we see the same thing happening today as federal power intrudes deeper and deeper into the sphere of authority rightly belonging to the state and the people. In his 1791 opinion on the constitutionality of a national bank, Thomas Jefferson wrote, I consider the foundation of the Constitution is laid on this ground, that all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states or to the people. That's the Tenth Amendment. To take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specifically drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power no longer susceptible of any definition. End quote. So Mike Meharry says a single step starts with neglecting that first question. Is it constitutional? Not do I like it, not do I like the person who proposed it. Is it actually authorized in the plain, declarative language of the Constitution? He says when we fail to ask it, when we fail to hold the federal government within its limits, no matter what, we open up a boundless field of power. So pause for just a moment. Think of the worst politician you can imagine. Maybe it's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Maybe it's Bernie Sanders. Maybe it's uh, Hillary Clinton, Elizabeth Warren, or Obama, or Donald Trump. Now imagine them in possession, in possession rather, of a boundless field of power. That's where you're heading when you support the current president doing whatever he pleases because you like him. Never forget, there will always be a next guy. This thing was written, by the way, back in uh, 2019, just to, to put that into perspective. And I have to admit, it's, it's this realization that conservatives, or at least those who call themselves conservatives, who loved the Constitution when Bill Clinton was in power, but threw it away as soon as it was inconvenient, you know, under George W. Bush, 
That was a huge awakening for me personally. I'm not telling you you should stop being a conservative or stop being a Republican. I'm just saying that was the day I realized, hey, statism comes in a couple of different flavors. I was well aware of the progressive slash Democrat flavored statism. But that was my first taste of Republican conservative statism. Now, granted, a lot of that followed 9-11. There was fear. There was, you know, tension. There was scariness and anger. But that's the first time I realized it really is. It's about the power. It's not about the principles that we so proudly touted when, you know, it was Bill Clinton in office. So what can you do? What can I do? Keeping in mind that uh, you and I, you know, don't hold office at this moment or, you know, maybe maybe we don't feel like we have that much influence. The first step, as simple as it may sound, is simply understanding the difference between what legitimate government could and should be doing, in fact, what constitutionally it is authorized to do. And I'm not saying according to the interpretation of the latest, you know, incarnation of the Supreme Court, which supposedly, you know, is is there to tell us what the Constitution means. You realize before the Supreme Court took that power into itself in Marbury v. Madison back in 1802, it was the states and the people who determined what was constitutional and what wasn't. Meaning, if a question came up, well, now, is the federal government right to be exercising this power? If the states or the people of the states thought, no, that's not right, they ignored it. They treated it as if that's, that is nothing. That's because they were within their rights to, to, to make that determination. When the Supreme Court stepped up and said, you know what, we'll go ahead and we'll take, uh, we'll take over from here. We'll be the ones who will tell you what the Constitution means. Essentially, they were saying, we are part of the creature created by the states you know, in the Constitution. The Constitution called the Supreme Court into existence. And so the creature is asserting, I'm going to tell you what the other parts of this creation can and cannot do. Liberty which was the reason it was created in the first place, takes a back seat. Now it's procedure. You do see the difference, right? This is The Brian Hyde Show.